Well, this is, uh, I believe, close to the 28th sermon on the book of Galatians, second to last, so some of you will be very excited about that, Uh, others maybe not so much. Uh, But when you're 28 sermons into a series, uh, after that many sermons, sometimes you begin to lose the forest for the trees. We spent a lot of time Uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit, Uh, and with that we are kind of taken out of the argument of the book of Galatians, and so there is a danger as we kind of jump back in uh, uh, that we would forget kind of what has come before. If you will remember, uh, Paul began his epistle astonished. He was astonished that the church that had been called by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would so quickly turn to a different gospel. And not only astonished, we saw that more than that, he was angry at the false teachers. So he's astonished at the congregation. He is frustrated with those who have come in and snuck in by stealth and taught this other message. He says, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, preaches a gospel different from the one that Paul preached to them, he says, let them be cursed to hell. I mean, there are two things that Paul is most concerned about in this epistle to Galatian. One, a false and true gospel. He is concerned that you know what the true gospel is and be warned or beware of false gospel. But with that, he's also concerned about false and true teachers, those who come in uh, with what seems to be the sanction of God and preach a message that ultimately undoes the message and the foundation that he had laid. The gospel that Paul preaches is one where one is made righteous by faith in Christ only, apart from any other works of the law. And for Paul, either one one is made righteous by the hearing of faith that believes and puts their trust in Jesus, or they are made righteous by the doing of the law, and for him it's an all-or-nothing proposition. If works, then it's all works. Do everything that is written in the book of the law. And cursed is anyone who does not abide in all these things. But if it's grace, then, for Paul, it has to all be of grace. That Christ became our Redeemer when he became a curse for us, taking all the penalties of the law on our behalf. Paul says we believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith. And he says, very specifically, and not by doing the works of the law. By faith, according to Paul, we are justified. By faith, we receive the Spirit. By faith, we've been named sons of God and heirs to the Abrahamic promise. We are Abraham's offspring, and we are the inheritors of all the good things that Christ has won. All, he says, by faith. Paul's gospel affirmed these things. But those who are troubling Galatia have added to that message of Paul something that seemed just so simple Just a few works of the law. I mean, a little circumcision here, a little keeping of days there. I mean, maybe a little circumcision doesn't sound uh, that little. But uh, uh, for them, it was, you know, of course these things were commanded in the Old Testament. It's how God marked off his people. And if you want to then really be initiated into these things, then not just faith in Jesus. That's a great start. But also these other things that will help us know that you're really a part of us. And Paul, you remember, is not shy about 
noting his anger concerning this message. He says to the congregation, am I an enemy now because I've told you the truth? You were doing so good, he said. Who hindered you? Who stopped you? Whoever it was, he says, they were not sent from Christ. He says, I actually wish that those who have told you these things, those who got you off track concerning your walk with Christ, I wish that they would castrate themselves. Uh, So Paul's a little frustrated, uh, obviously, uh, and he is zealous. He is zealous for the gospel that he's preached. He is unwilling to let it be commingled with anything else, and he says to do so is to lose the message altogether. And then we come to this final stretch of the book, And while most agree that the section we read this morning is a unit that should be held together, it also seems like a real hard left out of nowhere for Paul. I mean, look, it is held together. You see this idea of doing good in verse 6, sharing in all good things, and then you see the, the text concludes with, so as much as you can to everyone do good. So you'll notice that phrase, that language, that kathos language, is there at the beginning and the end. It's what's called uh, an inclusio. A better way, it's a sandwich, you know. And doing good is on both sides of the sandwich. And in the middle is this sowing and reaping language. Uh, And so it's held together by these kind of themes. And everyone agrees that, uh, or not everyone, but most people agree this is a unit linguistically. But while a unit linguistically, uh, it seems to be for many uh, kind of a potpourri of ideas. It's just... Paul kind of knows he's getting to the end of his letter. He's got a few things he wants to get out there, so he just kind of throws some instructions out uh, and litters the page with it and hopes you can just pick up the principles as you go. They would say, well, he's not discounting his message to the Galatians earlier, but he's delivering just a different set of instructions right now. He's got some specific things he wants to impart to the church. For a few commentators, it's so out of nowhere and seemingly scattered, they argue that it's clearly not Pauline, that someone else wanted these instructions in there and kind of snuck them in to the epistle uh, when everyone else was unawares, and it's been handed down to us in this kind of commingled way where we have Paul's epistle and then some Christian instruction from someone else, and then it resumes Paul's epistle afterward. Well, for those of us who believe that God's Word is inspired and inerrant, that won't do. But still, for many, these last-second instructions do appear disconnected from everything that Paul has said before. And they will say it's bracketed off from all of his previous teaching and what also will follow this teaching. And so the headings that many people or many uh, other commentators use go something like this. One author writes, these are recommendations for the Christian life these four verses, or mundane advice for converts. Sounds exciting, so get ready. That's what you're getting this morning. Some mundane advice for converts. So this exhortation section where Paul is really telling them uh, kind of what to do in their Christian life, they feel is detached from what Paul has preached up till now. It has nothing to do in the minds of many with false teachers or false gospels or law-keeping It's just, again, general instructions and principles. That's hard to fully accept because of the language that Paul uses 
in these verses. You'll notice it's language that's intertwined with what's come before. Uh, This spirit-flesh dichotomy. From chapter 5, where Paul spent a lot of time talking about the spirit versus the flesh, Paul brings back around in these verses and says, you sow to one, you get one thing, you sow to the other, you get another thing altogether. He seems to intentionally be connecting himself to the teaching that's come before, and if it's not connected in any kind of idea way, it's pretty confusing that he would combine it the way that he does. So for some commentators who see this linguistic connection, they break verse 6 away from verses 7 to 10. Now, this is going to sound like a lot. I hope to make this very simple. Verse 6 simply says, you know, pay your pastor. That's where we're going to spend all our time this morning. No. Um, And verses 7 to 10 then talk about how you're to walk in your Christian life until glory which again does seem like pretty random just throwing out of ideas. Pay your pastor, and by the way, also, you know, do good things. Uh, Just kind of, again, uh, a jumble of ideas. But of course, there's an issue there. Because it's clear that this sowing and reaping is so important that it leads to heaven or hell. Did you notice that in the language? If we sow to the Spirit and keep on sowing and we don't get tired, we get eternal life. But if you sow to the flesh, you get corruption, which is the opposite of eternal life. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? The resurrection is that being raised to incorruptible, incorruptibility. Well, now he says if you sow to the flesh, you get the opposite. You get corruption. So after Paul's five-chapter defense of justification by faith alone, apart from any works, some of our best Protestant commentators say that Paul is saying that what we need is to do good works if we're going to actually inherit eternal life. Quote from one of my favorite commentators so far in this book, actually. Ready for the human effort is necessary to attain ultimate salvation. So, so notice what he's just done here. There's a salvation that we have initially. Paul's justification by faith language. But then there's this other salvation that we will have finally, and these two are disconnected by what happens in the middle, which is sowing to the Spirit and thus doing good. Uh, It sounds a little different from what Paul has said thus far. I mean, if justification is by faith alone to start, these authors would say, without works of sanctity done by our human effort, Final salvation won't be yours. So whatever justification is, it's not enough to get you all the way to heaven. Uh, And of course, that kind of robs Paul's glorious declarations that have been given all the way up till now. It seems to posit an uncertainty into our salvation that will only be accomplished with the addition of works brought about by human effort. But how does that not just get us back to right where we started with the problem in Galatia? I mean, if there's some human steps that need to be done to finally get us right with God, why is Paul so angry with these people coming in and saying, hey, there's some works of the law that need to be done in order to be right with God? Does Paul really end his epistle after all this focus against false teachers who preach a false gospel, a gospel that he says is mixing works with faith by saying, first, pay your pastor, and second, If you keep doing good and you never get tired and you don't give up, you will receive the reward of eternal life. 
After all this, is it really do good and you'll get good, but do evil and you'll get evil? I mean, perhaps, but it would seem strange. I mean, no doubt our confession makes very plain that saving faith produces fruit. And in that, the Spirit who works faith in us also works righteousness in us. But the problem is your justification, your declaration of righteousness on which all of your salvation is determined is already done according to Paul and our confession and is our only hope for salvation. Those works of sanctity that are produced don't add one iota to your final salvation. It's either all done in Christ and we're justified, declared righteous, standing before God as right through Him, or it's Jesus plus some other things. So what is Paul talking about? And why what seems to be, again, this hard left at the end of the epistle? Well, let's first see Paul's exhortation. Let's start where everyone agrees. Uh, In verse 6, the vast majority of commentators from every tradition agrees that Paul's talking about financially supporting the ministry. He literally says, if you read it woodenly, the one who is catechized must koinonia all good things with the catechizer. Uh, You know, that koinonia term, that term that Paul says uh, that's translated here, sharing, is often a reference in the New Testament to material goods. We don't use it that way often. But, in, for instance, in the book of Acts, they had all things in common. That word that we translate in common is a root of this word, koinonia. They had all things shared. They had all things in fellowship one with another. Or Paul says in Romans 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That word contribute is the word, the verbal form of the word koinonia. Share, have fellowship with the saints by giving to them financially. And that phrase, good things. Notice share, they must share in all good things with the catechizer. It's used in Scripture to refer to material goods and material blessings. That psalm that we read this morning, he satisfies the longing soul, but he also satisfies the hungry with good things. And again, in Jeremiah, I brought you into a land of plenty to enjoy its fruits and its good things. So notice, when God's recounting His faithfulness to the Israelites, the Greek translation of that verse of the Old Testament says, I brought you into a land that had everything. It was flowing with milk and honey. I gave you all these good material things. I blessed you. The same word is used by Jesus uh, in the rich man and the Lazarus story. When the rich man comes and says, can't you send Lazarus over here to dip his finger and give me to drink? And he says, remember in your lifetime, you received your good things. And so what is he saying? He's saying to the rich man, you were blessed material on earth. You had all your good stuff and that's all you got. That was basically you had your good time uh, and now it's over. So Paul is saying that those who teach should share in the material blessing of the congregation. And this isn't new for Paul. He says it clearly in other places. You know, let the one who labors in word and doctrine be counted worthy of double honor. And then he says, do not muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. Talking about you should pay your minister. You know, you guys pay me well, so this isn't a complaint to you. I'm just preaching this text. Uh, 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 Christian, I should have made him preach it. Um, (laughs) 
But this really is a way where the congregation, our congregation, has always been very good to us. So I have, you know, this is in one sense preaching to the choir. But he does tell the Corinthians, if you benefited from us spiritually, should we not benefit from you materially? This is something that Paul brings up over and over in the New Testament, that there is this reality of being called to gospel ministry, and those people need to earn a living somehow. And he says it's the congregation then that should help supply. By sharing in the good blessings that they have, it should also be shared, you know, with the minister. That whole, you know, ministers should be humble and poor. We'll let the Lord keep you humble and we'll keep you poor is not a uh, good way to treat your pastor. Um, and so for Paul, this isn't new. But you do have to ask the question, why now? I mean, where did paying your pastor even come from in this epistle? Why is he bringing it up? Seemingly out of nowhere, the pastoral calling and their supplying for their material needs hasn't even been a subject that's been close to being broached thus far in the epistle. Well, notice Paul's explanation, if that's his exhortation. His concern seems to be that they not listen to those who have infiltrated their ranks. That's what it's been so far. But now he says... Apparently, don't forget to pay the preacher. And then, according to some, he moves on to what seems like a call to holy living. But if you take the content that seems moral at first blush and look at it through the lens of Scripture, you may see something different. So notice this sowing. It does seem moral at first, right? Both of these things. Uh, What you plant, Paul says, pops up. Now, I'm a terrible gardener. Uh, We are not uh, good so far in our family with the planting and harvesting of crops. But we at least know this. While I may plant something and nothing pops up, that's possible. Uh, But if I plant something and something does pop up, it will be the same thing I planted. You don't plant, you know, uh, a tomato plant and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're, 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 you're sprouting, you know, potatoes or lemons. What you plant in the ground is what also will be reaped at the end. And it seems to be, at least at first blush, a moral thing. So if you're sowing, whatever you're sowing uh, will have the advantage, right? So uh, does your sowing advantage the flesh or does it advantage the spirit? Because each will pay back handsomely for whatever is sown. That's what it seems to be saying when we read it at first. And doing good clearly seems to be about moral performance, right? Do good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Do good to everyone. It seems like moral instruction, And you've used these verses that way, I'm sure. I have. But if you can bear it, I want to argue that Paul has not left his subject about finances and talking about material concern in this text. And he has a very specific reason for doing it. He wants to undergird his gospel concerns by talking about these material concerns. He wants to warn, once again, against false teachers and the dangers of false gospels by talking about what we do with our money, even within the context of the church. And we know this because the language that Paul uses is material in other Pauline texts. So, for instance, the language of sowing and reaping is a prime example. Paul uses sowing and reaping not usually, interestingly enough, about our morals, but about our use of finances and work. So, for instance, Paul says, in the context of paying ministry, he says in 1 Corinthians 9-11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, shall we not reap material things from you? 
So again, notice, in the context of paying the ministry, Paul uses sowing and reaping to talk about, again, paying the minister. It's material concern in 2 Corinthians as well. Paul says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. So notice, sowing and reaping in reference to what? Giving financially. Don't do it reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice what he goes on to say. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you may abound in every good work. So he starts using this language that he's about to use here in Galatians. He's saying that how you give is considered a good work as it's written He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And look how he concludes the text. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. All in reference, again, to how we use our material gain in this life, right? So he's saying you sow in a certain way, you reap in a certain way. And even the language of good things or good works we see is used with reference to material or financial things in Paul. And what Paul just said, notice he said, in your giving you should abound in every good work. As it is written, he has given to the poor. So he's saying, you know know why it's a good work? Because God gives to the poor, and that's how we judge what good works look like. But that's not all. I mean, we see this amazing overlap in 2 Thessalonians. For we hear in 2 Thessalonians 3, that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies, which I love. It's a great turn of phrase. Uh, he says, some of you are lazy. You don't ever get busy with work, but boy, are you busy talking gossip to everyone. Uh, says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. What's the next verse? As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. How are they doing good? By earning their own living. So notice, even this verse that Paul's going to use in Galatians, don't grow weary in doing good. He uses that in Thessalonians to say, don't grow weary in doing good. Well, what, what does that mean? It means set your alarm and get up and go to work tomorrow. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. So he's used this language elsewhere. Sowing and reaping he's used to talk about finances. And doing good or doing good works he's used to talk about finances. And so all that to say, he stays on the subject of material support. So, so what? I mean, why does that matter and what is he really getting at? Well, Paul is warning the Galatian church, as he has from the start, about the dangers of false teachers and a false gospel. He's warning them, if you sow your money... To those who teach Torah, you are sowing to the flesh. And that's all you're ever going to get from it. That's the only reward. If you're giving your hard-earned money to a ministry that preaches law, then what you're going to gain from that is death. That's the only outcome of that kind of preaching. It always ends in corruption. You can't gain anything beneficial from it. It's connected to the flesh of this age. It is connected to the preaching that says, do this and you will live. And it never bears the fruit of eternal life. 
Because those sorts of teachers only sow to your flesh. They will convince you that it's all on you. They will teach very convincing sermons. That the reason you should give more to their ministry is that it will prosper you in this age. Notice again, it's all do this and be blessed. Do this and live. You will be blessed in your performance if you do what you're told, if you follow these principles, if you just do this or that. And what's amazing is that way of sowing and that way of teaching always leads to death and destruction. It can never bring about eternal life. And what's really amazing is it's a great way to get rich. Paul's about to argue, stop giving your money to false ministers who only preach a gospel that leads to utter destruction. And the most powerful ministries in our nation are often the ones that say, give me your money and you will have material success in this world, in this age. Give and your flesh will be propped up. And Paul says that always ends in destruction. Never does it issue forth into eternal life. In case you think I'm crazy, which is fine. Um, I'm going to cloak myself here. Uh, This is not a new teaching, though it is not a popular one in modern commentaries. Uh, Servanius of Gabala, a preacher in Syria in 408, uh, says this concerning the text. From this, Paul showed that many were wasting their money unseasonably, providing for those who prescribed to the keeping of the law. But they were providing nothing for those who proclaimed the true teaching of Paul. Therefore, he said, the one who sows to his flesh, for the one who is subject to the law lives in a fleshly realm that leads to destruction. End quote. So Paul is saying to them, don't be fooled into thinking that you're doing good by providing for that sort of ministry because it will kill you and everyone who hears it because it will preach a gospel that leads to death. And he says, God will not be mocked. You can't support and sit under and spread a gospel that undermines the cross and the free grace of Christ and expect God not to take it as a slap in the face. That's why Paul has been so incensed since the beginning of this epistle. He's saying God has offered you his son in flesh and blood, ultimately in death on a cross, and you're saying, well, that's fine. But circumcision and keeping of days and doing these things, he says, God is not going to put up with that sort of mockery. He's given his one and true way to salvation, and he will not share that way with another. For Paul, this is a spitting in the face of the crucified Savior, pretending that there is a way also through effort and energy plus Jesus. Paul would say it's not just harmless kindness to a, you know, mishappened teacher, but instead, Paul would say, I'm seeking to put out of business and disenfranchise all false teachers and their false gospel. And if you invest in those who preach in the way of this age, this do this and live sort of way, give and be blessed, he says, you are sowing the seeds of destruction in the hearts of men and women. But instead, Paul would say, we are to invest in the Spirit's work of new creation, which we do when we give to the preaching of the Word, because he says in that the seeds of eternal life are being sown. 
I've got some good and bad news for you today. Um, bad news first. Uh, your giving to the church, while much appreciated, I'm very happy to be able to pay my mortgage, uh, doesn't guarantee you any blessings in this life, not one. If you give, you know, above and beyond generously, like Paul says, as wonderful as it is, and God often does bless us financially, there's no guarantee of this kind of sowing and reaping principle in this age. That as long as you give your money, God's always going to make sure you're financially successful and set. That is not a promise that's given to us in Scripture. But there is a promise that if you care about the kingdom and you know that Christ has died for you and given himself freely to you, and you say, therefore, I freely give to his cause, which is the word being preached and the spirit using that word of grace in a gospel that's free to save sinners from death, that there really is eternal reward in that giving. That you really are sharing in the ministry of God and the kingdom of the world. And that he really is, by the power of his spirit, using broken men with a weak message to bring about his new creation through the power of the spirit. And so Paul would exhort us this morning not to give because it's going to necessarily get you a bigger house or a bigger car. That's exactly what these false teachers would say. And he'd say, that's sowing to the flesh, and it always leads to destruction. But that you and I can be generous in our giving to the kingdom, which is part of why, to be real honest, I joined this denomination to begin with. Is, you know, it was a very simple thing. Our denomination believes in supporting our ministries with a full salary through the denomination, that they don't come home on furlough and have to go panhandle church to church so they can go back out on the mission field. But they actually get a vacation, an actual furlough, as opposed to, you know, we hope you can get enough money for you to go out and do the Lord's work, you know, a year from now. Because we believe that if the gospel is going out, then that person is worthy of their wage. And so we as a denomination, you know, part of your giving here week in and week out goes to that larger uh, giving to the church. And those people go out and they preach the gospel to, to, to people you don't know and many of those missionaries you don't know. But the beauty is you are a part of that work, whether you know them or not. It has eternal reward, not again because you've earned anything by it, because you've supplied what's needed for a preacher to go out and proclaim a gospel of utter freedom to sinners who need it. And to give to a gospel that's contrary to that, Paul says, you're sowing the seeds of destruction, and those things should be put away. Brothers and sisters, we have freely received, and therefore we can freely give, not because it will prop up our kingdom here, but because we've died to this kingdom and been born to a kingdom that will last forever, where moth will not destroy, where thief will cannot come and steal, but where we will, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, and we will stand with others who are there because of a check that we wrote that supplied a ticket for a person to go across the world to preach a gospel that saves sinners. May we remember this uh, as we give, especially as we come to the Thanksgiving season and even to the thank offering of the church, the de uh, of the denomination. May we have these things in mind, knowing that we really are cooperating with the way of God in the world. Let's pray.